Well, hey there, folks. Welcome to The Sacred Speaks. My name is John Price, and I'm your host. I'm going to quickly get to a couple of websites and links and connections I want to direct you all towards, and then I'll read the bio of today's participant, then we'll get started. So first of all, The Sacred Speaks is brought to you by the Center for the Healing Arts and Sciences. Check it out at thecenterforhas.com. And also, The Sacred Speaks is going to uh, showcase a new website soon. So be looking for that at thesacredspeaks.com. The music, the theme music for The Sacred Speaks, as always, has been by Modern Nations. Check them out at modernnationsmusic.com. And then also for today's episode, I have Rachel Harris to thank. Rachel Harris is a previous podcast participant, and she'll be coming back on pretty soon. She's working on a really cool book that we're currently kind of talking about, emailing about. Uh, But I want to point you towards uh, the first conversation I had with Rachel Harris, because I'm grateful for her connection to Dr. Bernard, who is today's participant. Rachel Harris, you can listen to her on episode 27. Uh, The book is called Listening to Ayahuasca. That's a good read and cool conversation. Thank you, Rachel. Uh, And then today to the uh, book in question, um, first of all, check out Bill Bernard's uh, website at liquidlightbook.com, liquidlightbook. And, uh, and let me introduce you to him, and then we'll just get, get going. So this is the bio on this website, and, and check it. There's so much stuff to do on this website. He's got all kinds of links and references and appendices and uh, information and recordings. G. William Bill Bernard is a professor of religious studies as well as a university distinguished teaching professor at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas. His primary area of research interests are the comparative philosophy of mysticism, religion and the social sciences, contemporary spirituality, religion and healing, and consciousness studies. For over 15 years, including his ongoing study of Portuguese, a prof- Professor Bernard has researched the Santo Daime tradition, a syncretistic, entheogenically based new religious movement that emerged in Brazil in the mid-20th century. Professor Bernard is the author of Living Consciousness, the metaphysical vision of Henri Bergson, as well as Exploring the Unseen World, or Exploring Unseen Worlds, William James and the Philosophy of Mysticism, both published by State University of New York Press. In addition, Professor Bernard is the co-editor of Crossing Boundaries, Essays on the Ethical Status of Mysticism. Professor Bernard has also written many journal articles and book chapters on a variety of topics, such as the pedagogy and religious studies, the nature of religious experience, issues in the psychology of religion, and the most recently, in theogenic religions and spirituality. It's a really kind, lovely person who is a fantastic guide into this subject. So I look forward to presenting this to you and uh, and be on the lookout for a lot of cool releases coming from The Sacred Speaks. I've got some great conversations coming up. Um, some, some of note, I think, are, uh, let's see, AP Psychedelics uh, by Sean Manso, um, Going Beyond Set and Setting to Achieve Visionary virtuosity, and, uh, and then uh, Michael Winkleman on shamanism and the, uh, the supernatural after the narrow turn, and also Walter Hanengraf is going to be on the, um, on the show. We're still working on times when he's going to come on, and uh, his, his books, let me, let me find this, there we go. Uh, Esotericism in the Academy, Rejected Knowledge in Western Culture, and Hermetic Spirituality and the Historical Imagination, Altered States of Consciousness, excuse me, Altered altered States of Knowledge in Late Antiquity. 
And uh, he's, uh, I'm, I'm eager to read this work. Actually, I've got a lot of, so much cool stuff coming up. So hang around and uh, hang in there. And thank you for being here. And for now, I'll leave it there. Bill, really good to see you. And I, uh, we were chatting about, we have history, because you and I spoke a number of years ago about your work with Bergson. And, uh, and we never quite got to your work with James. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about that today, but as I already said in the intro, here's the book of question that uh, we have Rachel Harris to think. She's, she's coming back on the podcast too, but she reconnected huh. us and let me know about this book, because quite frankly, as I was saying, when you mentioned Santo Daime years ago, I, uh, as I said earlier, there's like a splinter in my side of curiosity that uh, feels very right to be able to explore this with you today. This is a wonderful book that we're going to talk a lot about, and I'm grateful for your time and for you being here. Oh, it's a delight. Absolutely delight. Yeah, so uh, just, just so we can get started and we can orient the, the listener and the viewer, would you go into that first-person narrative just to give your story about who you are and then, of course, contextualize what the Santa Dame tradition is, how you got into this tradition, and then we'll do our tending to philosophical implications, and then look at these weird um, experiences that tend to happen uh, that are that are paranormal in um, uh, by definition. And so we'll spend a lot of time tending to these three buckets and any other buckets that we get into. Good plan. Sounds good. Sounds good. 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 So um, let's see. Uh, you know, it's like with, with something like this, it's like it, I've been involved with the Santo Daime now for like 15 years. And I didn't originally start out to write a book. I originally started out because <clears throat> I had uh, I had heard about the use of ayahuasca in its sort of the more um, native setting, the indigenous settings and the, what they call the vegetalista settings, which are... Um, you know, more mezzizo, more co combining the sort of the indigenous and the and sort of Catholic sort of things. And, but but basically, I'd heard about the shamanic use of ayahuasca, and um, I really wasn't that interested <laughs> personally because you know I knew, and you know, because I'm I'm a professor of religious studies, and and I I I knew that along with all the the you know, use of ayahuasca for healing and, and for visionary experience. It was also used in those settings for, you know, less, less positive um, results, you know, for, for cursing, for mm -hmm. uh, black what we might call black magic or, you know, uh, magic that's used for power over other people. And I just did not want to be involved in that at all. And yeah. so it was like, so I, I was like on a retreat with my wife and, and I was at a bookstore and I and I happened upon this book called Forest of Visions, which is written by a man who's uh, now a very long term and beloved elder within the Santo Dami tradition. Um, and I was going and I said, oh, my gosh, as I started to look through it, I began to say, here's a here's a group that's using ayahuasca for. The purposes of self-transformation for the purposes of spiritual awakening for the purposes of of helping to heal the planet and bring light and love into this world and i said oh 
Now that sounds fascinating. <laughs> I can, I would like to explore that. And so, I mean, just personal, I, I've just felt a personal call. And so I reached out to the man who um, wrote the preface for the book, which was a man named Jonathan Goldman, who runs at this point um, a church up in Ashland, Oregon. Um, and uh, said, well, hey, you know, how can I go to Brazil and 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 be part of this tradition and experience and experience it? And he said, I can help you, but you might want to take baby steps first. Mm-hmm. Why is this advice I received? <laughs> because I ended up not going to Brazil for like, an, I don't know, maybe five more years. And even when I got there, it was really rough. And, and by the time I had studied Portuguese for, you know, at least, a, you know, two or three years. Um, but what we ended, I ended up doing was doing uh, like a five-day um, Santa Daimi workshop with him and just in some little retreat space and in North Carolina. Um, and it, we drank Daimi, which, which is their, their, the term within the Santa Daimi for ayahuasca. Uh, it means it's from the Portuguese. It means give me. It's like it's like it's it's the imperative. Like give me light, give me love, give me energy. You know, give me give me freedom. Right. So it's part of a prayerful invocation. Right. So we drank um, daimi uh, three times, and it was one of the most amazing, beautiful spiritual experiences I had. And so I started the book off because I want with a book. I want to sort of allow the reader to sort of have a type of vicarious immersion into what it feels like from within to be a dimista. And I, at this point, I was not a dimista. I was just someone interested in this, right? But at least it had a feeling of like, what it feels like to be just this curious, open-minded person who's doing it for the first time and um, and having just really profound experiences with people who were just extremely loving and competent and capable. And um, so that was my my intention, and and I, I throughout the book I wanted to, and, and I discuss it very very much. You know, I wanted to allow give people let's say how put this give people the opportunity to not just see the Santo Daime as a religious tradition from a distance, from looking at it, from, you know, which is, which is all very fine. Lots of um, really wonderful academic works have been done on this tradition, especially in Portuguese, um, from that a, a more distance perspective, a, a perspective that, you know, talks about the economics and the politics and the mm-hmm. legal issues and all these sort of things. And, and I, you gain a lot of information about this, but as I put in the book, it's like it's almost like these people have never drank timing. And I know personal that most of them have a lot. And so it's sort of fascinating to see that there's such a prohibition within the academic world to um talk about your own experiences firsthand from that that sort of first person experience. And um from the and and I it just felt very important for me to say to challenge that and to say, to say yeah I, yeah is um had you done had, had you had experiences with entheogens or psychedelics previously um really the only experience i had was when i was a teenager i took uh lsd twice yeah and uh had amazing experiences yeah. absolutely 
Absolutely amazing experience. <laughs> I, I, I read, yeah. I read something today that it was a quote on one of these like social media things. It was like, acid LSD is really interesting. I can have a profound conversation with div the divine or I can get totally lost in what's in my pocket. You know, it's just like wild. And, and yeah. getting lost in the pocket could be a total experience. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, so you did. You had the kind of um, initiatory experience early on in your teenage years where you have this kind of experience of LSD, but then didn't do it for many years. And then you became that's a religious right. studies professor. Yeah, and, and part of that was also um, I was a disciple of Swami Muktananda for um, I lived and traveled with him for like eight years and I was trained to be a, a monk, a sannyasin in that tradition um, for a long time. And and that was sort of a part of that tradition was you gave up any, um, you know, any addictive substance, even though I don't LSD is not addictive. Um, psychedelics are not addictive and that's important to understand. But, you know mind-altering substances because the whole focus was just you know um, training and meditation and things like this and uh, that brings up an interesting thread that i want to uh, the seed i want to plant now is this you know to plant medicine and not to plant medicine that there there really is a lot of folks out there that are saying no if you go lock yourself in a dark room for seven days and you fast you're going to have some pretty radical visions and you can train yourself in order to cultivate these states of consciousness. But then there are others, of course, that are like, no, I mean, we, th these take you to a place that you just can't get. Yeah. Um, wh uh, m m well, what is your, having done that, the work in this um, uh, kind of Eastern uh, philosophy, yeah. what do you say to that? Like, what are the differences between not doing it and doing it? Um, yeah, I explore that some in the book because it's a, uh, it's an interesting overlap for me. Um, and it's because I, 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 I can see the merits in both sides, in essence, and, and, it's, and I've worked to integrate them both within myself. And you can see <laughs> I've got a daimy altar here. I've got my, you know, Eastern altars around me. I, 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 I've in my life, it's, it's a very much a work of integration of those two, because what, what I found, um, and I, I know we can talk more about this, is that the, one of the things I like about the Santo Daimi tradition is that it is, it's actually a, you know, it's a spiritual path. It's not just an episodic thing you just sort of do. And um, even though, honestly, I have nothing, I mean, praise God for the, the renaissance of therapeutic uses and of, of, of psychedelics. And, and I'm honestly not even opposed to recreational use of psychedelics if it's done carefully, if it's done with consciousness and heart and there have been plenty of people myself included who have had this and been amazing awakening experiences and experiences of like oh my gosh now i have had i will say within the that the meditative tradition i was trained in i had some mystical experiences that were probably equally if not even more profound than some of the experiences i've had over the years with the, with the santo daimi tradition mm -hmm. Um, but much more infrequently and much more episodically. And um, so what, what, what I think is valuable is to, whether it's in a religion, whether it's in a meditate Eastern meditative tradition or whether it's in the Santa Daimi, is to have a disciplined, ongoing, um, meditative, focused, contemplative 
ecstatic, devotional, communal experience, you know, an opportunity to really uh, learn how to focus and concentrate the mind and how to open the heart, right? So I don't have any, to me, I like both, right? And um, I, so I continue my meditative practice. I love chanting. I love kirtan. And I love singing hymns within the Santo Daimi tradition. And there is something really special about entheogens, though. And, and in particular, ayahuasca or the, or the, that's just what I know best. I'm not saying, I'm not saying we, we're better than anyone else or anything like this at all. Um, it's just what I know best, who I can speak the most about. So there is there is something about this. And, and, and um, I talk about in the book, it's like a type of a, democratization of mysticism mm -hmm. so it it with within a structure that is a, it's 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 a formal tradition right it has a lineage it has a whole there's been there's been a long learning curve that's happened within the santo daimi of what works and what doesn't and so you have this very sort of almost like ornate ritual structure it's very disciplined and it's very focused and it's very uh um methodical in a certain way that allows um a person with, with a lot of safety and security and and um um because i know that's an issue for some people and and wisely so to to have that sort of setting be as optimal as possible for having profound connections with the divine for opening the heart for exp having explorations that that might be visionary, uh, profoundly visionary within, um, and so and yeah, I will say also, I always tend to tack back and forth. I will say that some of the best dimestas that I know have a yogic or meditative background. Because and the reason I say this is that when the daimi or ayahuasca in this case opens that inner door, that visionary a visionary experience. It's really good to have the the sort of the disciplined training of the mind to be able to keep coming back to the present, to keep coming back to the breath, to keep coming back to the heart, right? To keep stay grounded, to keep oriented with your intent in terms of of how how deep you want to go, instead of just letting yourself be carried away in the river the onslaught of of um energy and experiences that can happen that the daimi can bring because it's a to my mind it's a very deeply participatory experience and and um as you know people have been using psychedelics for the past few decades will always tell you it's a participatory occurrence right it has everything to do with your intention Right. And so having that meditative focus really, really, to my mind, at least, helps to sort of um, say it's just like that. It's a dime sort of seems sort of seems to be like, we'll carry you where your mind wants to go <laughs> and help you go there, you know, but it's so it's like, OK, I want to go towards God or I want to go towards awakening or I want to go towards my heart. That's a. To my mind, it's it's a helpful sort of like, you know, like okay, yeah, let's go there. <laughs> so. Do you, do you feel like, because uh, Brian Marescu is uh, really doing some wonderful work in this territory with his book on, called The Immortality Key, and I've spent a lot of conversations with him talking about these 
what's happening in the current spaces of healing and psychedelics and religion. Um, but but in your in reading the first portion of your book, I, I really felt that you you spent time tending to this first person, third person perspective. And we know of a ton of people in the academy that had to write under pseudonyms in order to make sense of these radical experiences, whether kind of anomalous and paranormal ex- events. Do, do you feel that, that there's, like, why now? Why, uh, you're, are, are you taking a risk by hanging your flag out there and saying that you're singing hymns and drinking ayahuasca in a religious tradition? Um, it, I might have been taking a risk if I was a junior academic. Right. It's so sad, man. What the fuck? I know, right? I mean, it is. It's very sad. And it's really unnecessary because it's almost like, you know, sort of like the only way you, you can be subtle and, 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 and insightful and truthful is to pretend that you're not part of the tradition, right? What, and What are we doing right? setting that up? I, it's 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 almost like that the the model which I I completely challenge anyway of sort of the objectivity of the physical sciences totally. is, is sort of like cannibalized the humanities and oh, what a statement I mean that's loaded with a lot of I mean I yeah. think it's true actually I mean we we could unpack that for a while yeah that's, <laughs> that's but so- uh, you know but I, I my my I mean just give just my colleagues, they hired me knowing I was, I was going to be sort of their resident mystic anyway. And, uh, you're the weird dude. I'm not their weird dude. Right. (laughs) And so, and so I, they're all cool. And my, my students get all tickled with it. And anyway, so, but, but as long as I'm not, um, advocating anything, you know what I'm saying? You must do this or whatever. Or, 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 I mean, Bill, you're, you're not irreverent, you know, well, um, yeah, no, I, no, I, <laughs> I had to pull that back a little bit. You, yeah. Your irreverence is still respectful, I think. That's um, a good way to put it. <laughs> because you, 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 you honor the sacred aspects of, of yeah. this. Uh, so, um, yeah, you're, you're not going the, the Tim Leary route of uh, let's put it in the water supply. Um, but no. you, you are honoring the necessity to, to experience these experiences when we talk about ecstatic experiences it's valuable to understand what's the first person narrative and i really respect the risk that you took if it even wasn't a a risk because you've established tenure you've got you know your name on the wall and it's staying congratulations thank you yeah and you know i i just i felt very strongly that you know this is my time to just let it all hang out one way or the other and, yeah, you know, for better for worse and because you know i just wanted to just talk from my heart and yeah. write from the as as i wanted to write the book that i would want to read about this mm-hmm. basically that was sort of my criteria you know I think you did. And, yeah and to be sensitive to the different audiences you know it's like right. so you know you, you know uh, there are like three different audiences at least that I was I was trying to write for. You know, I'm writing for my academic colleagues, so it had to be as thoughtful and rigorous as I could make it, which was beautiful. And then I was writing for my dimista friends. Mm-hmm. So I had to sort of say, okay, I want to have this book 
reflect. So when they read it, they say, this is a really good, accurate portrayal of what it feels like for me within the being a Dimista. Right? While also carefully making some, you know, I won't say some critiques of the tradition, but at least some challenging a little bit some of some of the issues that I've seen within the tradition itself, which I think is important, you know, I mean, because I think the reader needs to know that I'm not just sort of like, you know, some sort of a, um, I don't know, so, what people can have some sort of weird vision of like some Jim Jones cult member or something, mm. just sort of like, it's not like this, you know, people within the Dami are, you know, typically very intelligent and very thoughtful. And, and there's a whole conversation going on about the tradition itself. And it's a living tradition that's, that I feel needs to have some balancing, and which I talk about a lot of the book, the sense that respecting the tradition itself and also understanding that it's a living dynamic tradition, right? And so there's conversation mm -hmm. as well. I got the diamesis. And then I've got just people that are interested in psychedelics, period. Yeah. Right, <laughs> you know. So, well, so uh, and I, I, I noted that to you earlier. The you're walking this really tender line of dual relationship, that yeah. that I think you did well. Where I, I could hear that, and I could I could feel the con not 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 that you were conflicted, but you were honoring a, a a kind of dual dynamic of wow, these are my my friends and these are my fellow journeyers, and also I'm needing to do what a comparative religion professor would do, which is take a, I, I don't mean criticize, I mean take a healthy critical lens yeah. to something as a subject as vast as religion is. So I, I, I would love for us to, um, the, the first kind of two questions that come to mind that I think will help us dig into this is, number one, let's, let's let you put on your religious studies hat for a second, and for anybody in there, just say, uh, so t two questions. What is religious studies, and what does a comparative religion professor do? And then also, could you go into a deeper exploration of what Santo Daime is, and maybe then we can get into your your story of your um, your journey down to uh, Brazil? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of people tend to think of religious studies professors just because they don't know. I mean, like I'll be on a plane and I'll say, oh, well, they do. Oh, I'm a religious studies professor. And they, they think I'm a minister, right? So, <laughs> of course, uh, of course they do. I mean, because why Why would they not? Um, we're, we're not ministers. Um, comparative religious studies professors are people who compare. They look at different... The, 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 the intersection between the differences of religion and the similarities of religion. And they look across the, the plurality of religious life in its fullness, in its, you know, the beliefs and the practices from a, a, the history, from a, um, a more, I won't call it necessarily neutral, but even handed way. So it's not, a, it's not from a place of saying, this is what you should believe. So it's not coming from a, a, a place of, of advocacy, right? It's more like a, a place of curiosity and of, of, of wanting to sort of see the, the fullness and richness of human experience in and through different religious lenses of, of practice and belief throughout history, right? Um, and so 
that's that's what a religious studies professor i to my mind does you know so i i teach courses and you which you, you may have already talked about you know and the, the, that are explicitly comparative like um mysticism east and west understanding mm -hmm. east and west um etc cetera, etc cetera, right um and and the santo daimi tradition itself um it's it started in um it's in the early early um decades of the of the 20th century in brazil and there was a it was founded by a man that with, that's known within the um santo daimi tradition as mastery irineo mastery it just means master and is a title of respect um, he was an almost seven foot tall black man a son of uh, former slaves and um he had been um as like many people at that time were done had migrated from the east of brazil um which was suffering from a drought into the amazon in order to make his fortune um basically because he was extremely poor as as he thought he was gonna be a rubber tapper um because that was where a lot of the a lot of the people were drawn to uh you know being rubber tappers because that's there was a huge need for at that time and um ended up um he was out in in he ended up actually being a, a sort of a enlisting with the army and and being a border guard and 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 way out in the way out in the amazon uh rainforest in the sort of the periphery between brazil and bolivia and peru and got exposed to the um both the indigenous and the and the vegetalista use of this the more shamanic use of ayahuasca and um ended up um being guided or inspired to create this a, a, a new um way of working with ayahuasca um he had some very powerful visionary experiences with uh the what was known as the Jaina da Floresta, the queen of the forest. At that at that time, it was just a, it was not just, it was a, he hadn't quite made that connection. And he, he actually called this female figure, this visionary figure, Clara, which just means clear clarity. And um, so he had some very powerful sort of a sense of almost like a transmission from this, this female divine figure mm -hmm. to sort of create this new religious movement. And um it took a while um the first actual um formal works of the santo we call them works the trabalhos in in portuguese um the form the rituals the, for, the first sort of ritual experiences of the santo daimi as as a as as a new religion really began in 1930 and then it gradually grew and changed and morphed and uh you can think of it in, in some ways as like, and, and, and this is very Brazilian, it's like a, it's a syncretistic religion, meaning that it, it synthesizes elements from a wide variety of different religious lines, different lineages. Uh, so, so you have the indigenous use of ayahuasca. You also have um, Mestre um, Irineo was raised as a Catholic, sort of, so you have a type of folk Catholicism that's very profound. And, and, and so in, really, in some ways, you can think of the Santo Daimi tradition as like a Christianization of, of ayahuasca. 
It's like it, it I, and I know that sounds sort of odd because and so when I when I talk to my students about this, I'm saying, yeah, no, if you're a dimista, most dimistas for sure think of themselves as Christian. They self-identify as Christian. And for them, within the Santa Daimi tradition, drinking the daimi is a genuine sacrament. It's a it's understood as um that the Christ consciousness itself is, has incarnated within this drink. And so that when you're drinking the daimi, you are actually com literally communing with the consciousness of the Christ and it, blending with it, communing with it. And so you have that Christian element. But so a lot of, I'm sorry. Doesn't that, so, sorry to interrupt. Doesn't that, it just seems to me that what's happening right now with all these theories, you know, I, I spoke with Carl Ruck, and we're talking about what was happening at Eleusis. Uh, we talked to Brian Marescu. We're talking about what was going on pre-Christian, early communion. Yeah. Doesn't that kind of re reconnect us with, with what was potentially happening back then in the first place with communion? It's, I mean, I would, I would like to hope so. Kind of makes sense, yeah. <laughs> You know, I mean, because because I tell you, it's like it's so profound and beautiful and so sacred and holy to it's not symbolic. You know, it's 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 a it's a genuine sense of reverence when you're drinking the diamond with that understanding, uh -huh. you know, and um, because, you know, for for uh, for us within the Santa Daimi tradition, th th there's a, you know, well, let, let me actually wait, let, let, let let me just finish up the the different lines, the sure. synchronous lines of it. So you got that, you have that, those two, and then you have this really interesting um, element in it, which is basically the West African religiosity, mm. because a lot of the um, the slaves that were brought over to Brazil, and there were just so many slaves in Brazil, carried with them that sort of uh, the the their, their that old, there, there, there's real ancient, beautiful tradition with the, the, what they call the Orishas, the uh, the gods and goddesses of of nature, you know. So the, like Yemanja, the queen of the sea, and Yansa, the goddess of the wind, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, right. And so you have that sort of that lineage or that sort of streaming of religiosity that's also brought into the Santa Dami tradition. Mm -hmm. And you've got a type of um, esoteric tradition, which is a whole thing. Um, and, and that's a little harder to explain how that could have happened. Um, but both Mestre Irineo, the founder of the tradition, and then Padrino Sebastião, who was the man who is a sort of one of the major um, continuer people who continued the tradition after the death of Mestre Irineo, who was basically Padrino Sebastião. That there's there's different lines of the of the Santo Daimi tradition, and he's the sort of the head of the the most popular popular meaning, like in terms of not population mm. uh, uh, line of the Santo Daimi. Both of these two figures were really interested in um, this this tradition in or this group in in Brazil called the um, uh, the this the esoteric circle of the communion of thought, which is basically a type of like Brazilian theosophy. Um, so they were 
you know, blending all of this, bringing together all this sort of um, esoteric and, and Eastern traditions into the Santo Daimi. So that's where in the Santo Daimi, you have this belief in reincarnation. You have a belief in the divine self. You have a belief in um, karma, right? So all of this sort of gets blended together and to create this really interesting um, tradition that's, you know, and sometimes people critique syncretistic traditions like they don't have any center. Sundadami's got a center for sure. It's its, it's, its own unique, very coherent um, co uh, uh, congruence to it, but it's blended together. And it's a very sort of open tradition in that sense too, so that it's, it's explicitly open to new sort of inspirations as people begin to join into it, you know? So anyway, <laughs> um, so I, I wanted to just say just a little bit about the, the understanding of, of divinity within the Santodami mm -hmm. tradition, because it's, it's, it's sort of unusual, but it's not that unusual, meaning that for people within the Santodami tradition, we tend to think of, of the nature of God as both male and female and yet something way beyond both. Mm -hmm. And so there's, it's a, there is, there tends to be a type of um, dynamic polarity that happens within the Santa Dimitrician, even ritually. So that you have men on one side, women on the other, but it's, it's a side. It's not like one side's better. So you have a sense of sort of a circularity and a, and a and an interactive um, male-female sort of flow that happens. And that's because the, the, the belief that, um, and well, it's not just a belief, well, I guess it's sort of, um, the, the daimi itself, it comes from two plants. It's not just one plant. So it's not like just psilocybin from like one mushroom. It's, it's, a, it's, an it's inherently an interactive creation, right? So you have the leaves of a plant, that's understood within our tradition to be carry that feminine divine energy. And then you have the, the, a vine that we believe carries the sort of the masculine divine energy. Those two are boiled together. And the belief is that that third thing that's created, the daimi, is the Christ, right? So you have that sort of, you, the, the holy trinity in the daimi is, is male, female, and then this, this um, understanding of the of the Christ consciousness that lives within everyone, but that is carried specifically by the daimi, and that helps is it's it, it, it's there to awaken people and to bring them back to their divine nature. Right, that's the purpose of of the divine of the daimi. Right, and so anyway, uh, and so that that's what makes it explicitly christian in that sense but it's sort of a, a very mystical christianity it's this is not you know the type of christianity that most people think of as like certainly it's like southern baptist you know christianity or something it's about the furthest thing you can imagine from that yeah your christ consciousness yeah would you would you go into that a bit and just talk about that because it seemed like that and i don't know how to pronounce the word that starts with a j yeah uh, you don't mean that. that one <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, because it, it, the, 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 you'll see this word called Jurami Dung in, um, in, in the hymns in, in the tradition. Um, and 
Jiramidang is understood to be, well, it's lots of things, but really it's understood to be the that the name of that of the Christ consciousness that dwells within the daimon. Um, and so the Christ consciousness for, for us doesn't necessarily I I say let me how to put this. Most daimistas are, you know, haven't had a lot of theological training. They're just, you know, they 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 they're very interested in singing hymns and drinking daimi and, and and living together harmoniously and and working to open their hearts and all those sort of things, right? But there is a sort of a um, within the hymns. There's the the, the teachings that Judamidon um, um, is certainly within at least the Patrinus Vastiaus lineage is understood to be Juda for means um well literally means oath but more it's understood theologically to mean sort of the transcendent aspects of the divine the parts of the divine that you might think like god the father or something like this mm -hmm. something that's um beyond any words beyond any sort of uh conceptual grid right and the midon is understood to be that imminent presence of the divine within each person and especially in this case with the people that are drinking the daimi right and so within the Santa daimi tradition there's an understanding that everyone carries that christ consciousness within themselves as the what we refer to as the ill soul the i am presence and this is this is this comes in from from that esoteric tradition right that that understanding of the I am consciousness is 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 that liberative, awakening, transformative uh, light of divinity that's coming into the world to help people to awaken to their own to that own inner divinity, and, and that's its that's his job, <laughs> right? To come into the sort of the darkness and the illusion, the suffering of the world, and to free people. And we'll get further into that when we do a philosophical kind of exploration of what's happening here. But I want to tend to all of our the Santa Daime uh, pieces. The the other, I guess, one area of interest that I've got as I was as I'm reading and of course talking to you is that you're you're participating in a new religious movement, and so you get to see the the formation of religion, and ostensibly that happens. All the time and has been happening throughout history so I, I borrowed a little bit in the way i was thinking about this from jung's um uh, essay he wrote on ufos and the, the the ways in which we can kind of look at how, how we relate to these anomalous experiences and see certain patterns of our 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 humanity r religioning um <laughs> And, and and so w would you speak a little bit to that about the 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 way because we can speak about Santa Daime and also understand I think real general in general terms how religions are uh, created because you've already hit on one really important piece in your religious narrative you have a central figure who goes into the wilderness yeah. and has some kind of a relationship with uh, a, a an other or a, a more. Yeah. and gets a download, you know, yeah. uh, receives the information that is then able to be ritualized and reified in important ways. 
Yeah. And, and I think sometimes people within the, when you're studying religious traditions, um, it's almost as if, and, and this does happen at times, you, you almost always do have these sorts of charismatic figures. I mean, yeah. the Jesus and the Buddha and Moses yeah. and yeah. St. Francis and whatever, you know, I mean, you can just go on and on about that. And then there is inevitably, and an, I would say a necessary institutionalization and a form structure that that has to be created in order for that initial well you know you know max weber would call about that sort of the initial charismatic uh yeah. revelatory experience to be um able to be carried on in history right and, and to be more accessible to to other people to be transmitted through through teachings through ritual etc cetera, etc cetera. and sometimes and and this this does happen of course rituals become stultified they become stagnant they become yeah. you know just they they lose their their juice stale right? yeah and, and 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 that happens and then people begin to be cling to the just the externals for it or you know for the or the just become dogmatic because you know i mean all sorts we could talk about the sociological and psychological need for that and and whatever within the and and you know the santo daimi tradition is a very human tradition right and yet it's also very divine tradition. Like I, I would like to hope every religious tradition is this, is this fusion of something more with a capital M that's something that can't be sort of grasped by, by you know, something transcultural, something beyond mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, trans historical, right? Um, that sort of, um, let's see, vifies, enlivens, brings uh, inspiration and, dare I say, revelation to human beings, something that's that's uh, full of grace, divine grace is what I, I think of it as with every religious tradition. And within the Santo Dami, what you have is that really interesting interaction, which I think, again, you see in every religious tradition between something that's Dare I say, I'm going to say it, it's something true, right? With a capital T, something archetypally true. Uh, you begin to be, like I mentioned this in the book, a little more platonic when you drink diamond a lot, because you begin to be, feel like that you begin to have, you know, experiential access to levels of reality that don't seem to be quite so bound and created by human limitations, right? Um, so you have so th th there's some like uh, Bergson would talk about this almost like um, this volcanic eruption of this mag magma of like of life and of divine energy that would come surging into this world and then it cools down <laughs> and mm -hmm. creates well, yeah. form right which I love that sort of that That's sort of way image. and 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 you need both right. Mm -hmm. And what's fascinating about the daimi, though, is that, and this is what I was talking about earlier, about the democratization of, of mysticism, is that that revelatory impulse doesn't cool down. It's still <laughs> red hot. I mean, every time you're drinking the daimi, you're having living, experiential, powerful connections to the divine that, that are undeniable. And so it's no longer just a matter of belief or a matter of social 
ritual, communal, this is the way we do things, right? Which is a lot of what religion is, right? Yes. It's not just that, but it is that too, right? And so that's the, and I think it's importantly needs to be that. And so you have a, you have, you get to see a tradition that even like when Nestor Irineo was alive, he was continually tinkering with the ritual forms based on his inspiration and guidance from within, from his connection to these spiritual others, these beings, the, you know, what for him, it would be the divine mother. It would be the queen of the forest. It would be a lady of conception. I mean, there is a very important divine feminine aspect in the Santo Daimi that that's, that's really crucial. And so for him is like, guidance like okay you know say so now we're going to start to dance and now we're going to change the uniforms and now we're going to start using musical instruments and now and there's a continual influx of teachings that are coming from these revealed hymns and we haven't really talked about the the role right. of the hymns in the in this tradition but it's crucial two two things that i think because that sets us up for an important question that i've been um waiting to uh to inject here, you you said in or you wrote in your book something I think is so important to note, and and no offense to anybody here, um, but what I think you were getting at is you were noting the spiritual but not religious uh, community and yeah. how if you can go through this model of just select selecting anything as it as it goes, you have nothing to push up against, yeah, and there's nothing that pushes up against you. And yeah. so as we're talking about hymns, I think that's a good point to talk about what you were saying earlier, because dogma is like a four-letter word in a lot of communities, yeah. but it's not in Buddhism, for example. It, it, it's, a, it's a path, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a way, you know, and um, so would you speak a little bit to that point, and I, I think you would even go so far, critique me if I need to be critiqued here, to uh. say that having that dogma and not having everything that you would uh, like or prefer is in fact necessary for a healthy religiosity or a healthy religious experience. So t take that. Yeah, I, I, you, I just love your question. I just have to take a moment here to just sort of say how much I'm enjoying this. <laughs> because it's, too, so it's so rare to be able to like talk about things that really matter with, you know, and, and, and Thanks, in a deep way, you know? And so, just anyway. I just, love it. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. Anyway. Uh, yeah, this... Um, <laughs> I came into the, the, the daimi as a spiritual but not religious person because I had, mm -hmm. I had already been part of a religious tradition with the Siddha Yoga, with, with Swami Muktananda for years and, and benefited tremendously from it and i mean with all the complexities of it and and even within that tradition they were like oh no we're not a religion really we're just <laughs> you know because people have they, they, you know people have a so sort of much. like an allergy to being so religious much. and and so when i first heard a lot of my daimy friends were oh our religion i was going yeah i just got <laughs> any the willies you know yeah. Because I don't want to be in a religion, you know, and mm -hmm. especially 
with all the Christian stuff. I mean, honestly, because I came from sort of, I had a real allergy towards, you know, I, it's mainly sort of the repressive aspects of Christianity. Yeah. You know, the, the dogmatic with the four letter word in terms of it's And it's, it, again, it's not, to me, it's not teachings and, uh, and, and insights and doctrine and all that sort of stuff is, is really important, but it's, it's when you begin to be like attached to it. And again, that's, that's where you say, I'm right. You're wrong. Oh. I've got the answers, all, all that sort Amen. of stuff. <gasps> Horror show. Right. And so, it was really important for me to be able to sort of enter into this with my eyes open and to sort of say, okay, um, let's see how I put this. As I became more, actually said, I'm going to become an initiate in this tradition. It's like, okay, yeah, I actually see the value of these teachings and I see the value of this structure. And as long as it's not um, saying that, you know, we're better than other people. Mm -hmm. right? And, and, and sometimes there, there really is none of that. There's no, they're, they're in fact, almost the opposite. It's more like, because there's a very clear sense of within the Sandra Diamond you do not proselytize. You know, you can share Beautiful. your experiences, but you do not, do not. People have to be, feel that inner call to sort of say, this is this is appropriate for me just this to even try it out, right? <clears throat> and and yet, you know, I do write about in the book quite quite extensively. It's it's like, how are you going to do that really profound ego work level work of polishing your ego if you don't have something to bump up against? As you've I think put, said very beautifully, mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. you know, if you don't have you know, rules and structure and format and ritual protocols. And a, a lot of the book, you'll, you know, you've seen it. It was a lot of me just sort of like squirming <laughs> with this. It's like, oh, I just like, what? Do we really have to dance all night? Is that really, do, we, do we really have to do that? Can we just like dance half the night? Right. You know, I was like, no, this is the way we do it. Right. So it's like, then you have to like adjust to that. You have to like, okay, how am I going to be with my, be with myself here with, with integrity, with authenticity. Mm -hmm. right? And, and, and how can I, you know, it's like, I, I don't know if I use this analogy in the book, but I should have, if I didn't, um, you know, it, when you're in a religion, it's, it's almost like playing baseball, you know? And if you're playing baseball, you don't get to say, Hey, I want five strikes. Yeah. Yeah. You know? You don't get that, you know, you, you play within the, the ritual rules and that's, that creates opportunities for people. And especially when it's a communal situation, which, which any profound religion is communal, you're having to deal with other people and you're having to deal with like how to listen carefully to people that have very different perspectives and how to share your perspective in a respectful way. And there's all these sorts of areas of growth that i mean i think life just provides it but it's it's if you're if you're just and i, I don't want to put down spiritual but not religious people because again i was one yes. um but there is a level of 
of growth that can happen more easily, let's put it, and more obviously with it, if you're if you're a committed, disciplined part of a religious tradition that you can't have if you're just if you're if you're the ultimate boss of, of yeah. things. Your ego's the boss. Yeah, that's your ego's that's right. the boss. Exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and like, so so I mean, you know, there there are parts of this like, <clears throat> tradition that still rub me a little wrong. Yeah, you know, they it does. It just I, I still feel a little uncomfortable about some parts of it, you know, and that's okay, you know, because uh, there is no pope in the Santo Daimi. There's no sort of person say, well, you're going to be excommunicated because you don't believe exactly this thing. No. In fact, most Dimistas could, I, I, don't, I don't want to say this too too strongly because, I mean, Dimistas are very heterodox. There's all sorts of plurality and different perspectives. Mm -hmm. I think it's safe to say that most Dimistas are, the, the focus of most Dimistas is not on getting, is not on doctrinal purity. It's on experiential depth and ritual uh excellence i think those i think that would be the the focus right and so you can have really living discussions and, and animated discussions about like what are the teachings of the santa Daimi? and in some ways this book is like a type of the once dimension the book is it's a type of theology of the of the santa Daimi. Mm -hmm. Um, it's a theological um, exploration of it. And that's that. I don't think there is another book like that um, because most Dimistas aren't that interested in theology. <laughs> and they really aren't, you know. I, but, but as I talk about it, you know, they, if you start getting in conversations with them, then, then you, I, I was sort of pleasantly surprised to find out that, well, Hey, yeah, I think they actually are sort of interested. Like, so what does this hymn mean when it says this and this and this, right? Well, and will you speak to that for a moment? What the hymns are, and I'm also curious about what a ceremony or what the work looks like, and yeah. uh, and then I want to jump into some of the philosophical stuff. Sure, and, sure, sure. and and I also feel this thread of your experience in Brazil, because I I think that one really significant aspect of the Santo Daime tradition are these uh, structures that were built for the preparation of the Daime. Yeah. And to yeah. me, that's just such a power, like the, the, the fact that so much intentionality and presence goes into the picking and the swirling yeah. and the creation and the cooking. And um, so let's spend a little time there, would you please? Yeah. I mean, um, you know, there are many different, um, we call them again, trabalhos or works in the Santo Daimi. Um, and um, the, the, the first one was what they call the concentration or the, uh, that, that really means like a meditation work. So that work has a lot of space for going within and long periods of, of, of internal, quiet, meditative experience with lots of singing of hymns and saying a communal saying of prayers, right? You're going to always have prayers and always have hymns in the Santo Daimi. Hmm. But this one, the, so the Concentracel adds that space of a, maybe like, uh, you know, uh, typical concentration work, I have two hours of, of silent meditation with everyone together, 
right? So you have a lot of time to go within and to really let the daimie carry you with, with it. So you got that. Then you also have um, what they call the uh, the inarios or the bailados, the, the the dance dancing works, and that's where you um, have uh, you sing and dance the whole inario, the uh, the hymn collection of one elder. So like the uh, Mestre Irineo has you know a collection of hymns, hundred and uh, 29 hymns uh, and uh, you sing and dance those in group together all night basically it's basically it's an eight it takes eight hours to sing all those hymns and then you usually have a you have just two four hour sections with like an hour and a half maybe two hour inter what they call interval uh, like a break in between um, now with all these, with all the, with all, with every, with every Santo Daimi um, ritual, you have a central altar, and you have the what they call the cruzeiro right in the middle, which is the the cross within the Santo Daimi that has a second horizontal bar, and that second horizontal bar within the Santo Daimi um, is often understood to, to represent the second coming of the Christ within us, not as a person coming down from the actual clouds, but actually the re the awakening of the Christ consciousness within each person, right? And so that's the central ritual sort of pillar of the of the Santa, every Santo Dami work. And then you have you know candles and flowers and pictures of elders and and it's so you have a whole central that people sit around. It's, it's usually a table of different Sometimes it's made like sometimes it's, it's, it's a star of David shape. Um, there's, sometimes it's a rectangle, what have you. But uh, the sort of the people that are more elder, sort of established in the tradition, like running the church or whatever, sit there. And then you you have, like I said, uh, on one side you have women, on the other side you have men, and you and and the majority of the people, certainly in Brazil um, and in larger churches in the United States, are. are um, they are what they call fardados. They are uh, people who are wearing the uniform. It literally means uniform people. So there is actually a, for the people that are committed, you know, um, disciplined initiates within the tradition, there are different types of uniforms that you wear that just sort of create a sense of harmony, a sense of uh, like belonging, right? And formality, a sense of seriousness of purpose. And um, so you have, you have, so in the, these dance works, what you have, you have, um, it, it's not just like, you just like, you know, and I, I love ecstatic dance. I love free form dancing. This is not that. This is very ritualized where you have like, uh, you either have a four, four beat and with a particular step that you, everybody does at the same time together or a, or a three, four beat or waltz beat that everyone just sort of sort of sways back and forth, but it's unified. So it's the, the whole thing is, wow. and it creates a sort of a, a, a zoom, 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 a, a sort of a, um, actually should be, I should be going, it's really more counterclockwise. It's a, a, a circulation of this, what they call the cohen sheep the the current 
um, within the within the salal, which is the word for it literally means big room, but it's the sacred space that the rituals are happening. Um, and so people are dancing just back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, playing the marakas, singing, singing the uh, the hymns one by one by one by one, all together with great focus and concentration and heart and and with with and these are just beautiful when people are playing the guitar and it, it's a very powerful communal experience of that that can be quite literally extremely ecstatic and quite exhausting. <laughs> you know, so it's both. And um so then you have so you have that. And then you also have uh what they, especially within the the Padrino Sebastial lineage, you have what these called they call healing works which are mediumistic works. Um, this, this is, uh, again, very Brazilian. Um, you know, Brazil has a, its own sort of um, homegrown religions called Umbanda that millions of, of Brazilians are part of. That is basically, again, a syncretistic tradition that sort of fuses um, African religiosity with indigenous religiosity with esoteric traditions with sort of Christianity, it's very, it's very congruent with, with, with the Santo Daime. And that tradition, because it's, it has that African element to it, involves um, people who are gifted and are just sort of talented in this way, um, voluntarily allowing different spiritual entities, spiritual forces, to enter into their body and mind in order to um, either bless the, the Salau or to heal the, the energies of, of the people within the Salau, the, the, the ritual space, or they can be in which we can talk a lot more about, um, certainly again within Pedrino Sebastial's lineage, this work where they call giving charity which involves working with this within our belief, the spirits of human beings who have died but haven't moved on mm -hmm. are this called uh, uh, suffering spirits, spirits that are often maybe addicted to alcohol or drugs or have unfinished business. They're often very uh, sad or they're very angry or they're, they're bound up and contracted and but they're attracted to the light of the daimi and they come to be healed they come to be free whether they even know it or not and so in these healing works people are drinking what you usually see is is in the course of the work different hymns calling in beings of light the being and and we can call them angelic beings, or um, they're also, there's, it, it often comes from the, the Umbanda tradition, they call the caboclos, which are the spirits of Native Americans, or the uh, pretavelios, which are spirits of, of, um, of uh, um, blacks who were enslaved, and, and, are, and these different spirits want to come and with a lot of compassion and energy want to help heal the the suffering of the people the participants in the ritual and also to it, with when you're working with suffering spirits they provide sort of a background of support of, of of light and protection and love and mercy 
that is that the suffering spirits are coming in and are meeting and are being met with so that you have this very very fascinating which i'm sure we'll have a chance to talk about overlay within your own consciousness as a medium of it's like a multi-dimensional co interpenetrated consciousnesses within your own being so you you're simultaneously feeling your own awareness the awareness of these different beings of light and then a suffering spirit can come in and then with all within your own consciousness there is this amazing meeting of such love and compassion of that being and they're like that all that intensity and, and contraction and pain and suffering and fear and anger is just dissolved and they are just taken into the light and it's some of the most beautiful uh moving experiences i've ever had um and it's done with such it is we call it giving charity it's 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 from again it's within our line of the santa daimi the sense that this is the work of the christ that the, it, it should be said too that those who can help others have a more expansive uh, view of self you know when this is all if this is like what what i say to a person that i'm working with in my therapeutic office is that look if you're about to pop and feel like you're going crazy go to somebody in need and devote yourself to being of service so beautiful. and, and it, yeah it, it's a it's a generative altruism that is if i can help others that means i have the capacity to hold and make space for others yeah. and and it's so healing but i also understand and for anybody listening and watching that just kind of went er, what like i know you know, I know. I know. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna talk about this and yeah. um yeah. Your, your reference to because this is one of the things i'm i'm really eager to dive into um and before I jump, because I want to read something that you know, I want to read your words. All right. Um, but before we go there, um, I, I I want you to define something that we hear a lot. And if your if your intentions are based on this, whatever energy or image, um, I think you're a good person to define it. When you say the divine feminine, what do yeah. you mean? Um. Yeah, um, that's a great question. Um, I, I want to talk about from my own experience, right? Um, I, I remember, and I, and I talk about this in the book, when I first came into the Daimi, I kept hearing about the Divine Mother, and I kept hearing about, you know, the Virgin, the virgin Mother, because it's all typically comes from a Catholic lens, you know? And, and I remember at one point I was going, oh, my gosh, you know, I literally was like sort of praying and saying, I keep hearing about this. I know you're so important in the Daimi, the Santa Daimi tradition. I don't have any connection to you whatsoever. <laughs> I don't know who you are. I don't know what this is about. Right. And that's when I actually received my first hymn was and it was, it was called Come Down Virgin Mother, you know, and it was like it was all about it, was, it, it literally felt like. She was coming in through the hymn and giving me an experience of what, who she was, right? And so from my, my experience or my sense of the Divine Mother within the Santa Daimi, 
it's 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 the experience of the divine as very tender very soft very gentle very warm very compassionate very merciful um and it feels motherly mm -hmm. dare i say that right that sort of the archetypal sense of what you would want the best mother in the world to feel like <laughs> you know like you're just being held in absolutely unconditional love right that to me is what it feels like um now i mentioned this i've had lots of experience of, of the divine you know like what they call the shakti within the meditate my prior sort of uh meditative tradition right we talk a lot about the kundalini and the shakti and and all these goddesses within the yogic tradition they, that, that's another whole other side of what I would call the divine feminine as well, which is, you know, so it's, it's, that's a different, that's, it's full of energy and life and, and also ferocity and, and, and force and, you know, because the Shakti means literally force energy, right? I think that's also part of the divine feminine. I think that there is a, there's a multitude or plurality of expressions of, of what, that how that can appear and um so but within the daimi it tends to be more it, it's sort of like um what i was talking about earlier i don't know <laughs> yeah, as as they, i can get to it you know and, well, and the, no i think that and what tends to happen in this in this space and has happened historically is there's a kind of freudian uh, reduction that happens and you know given given our evolutionary history and our psychodynamic histories, you know, our our early autobiographical experiences of the need to be mothered. Because yeah. uh, I'm, I'm an attachment guy. I study <laughs> attachment theory. And if we don't get primarily healthy mothering, yeah. we're pretty fucked. And, and that... Depending on where that is, whether it's in utero or it's the first couple of years of life, yeah. we can have pre-verbal wounds that aren't, they don't land in our memory system, in our cognitive system in the same way that our later traumas do, where we can quickly access them, we can have the kind of episodic memory, we can work through them. They're more pervasive and generalized, and we're we tend to project them out onto other objects and images throughout our life. But I'm kind of of that tradition that's like, so what? You know, like, I don't care how you define it. Um, there does seem to be some kind of universal structure to mother, mother nature, uh, you know, mother divinity, and our actual experience of our personal mother, that we need a safe space to be held and connected. And, and, and it is a tenderness and softness and, yeah. So I, I just want to define that for folks. I mean, I certainly can free associate on that, but I, I, I think that's an important piece to include in our conversation. I agree, you know, and especially because people tend to often envision God, I mean, you know, certainly in the Christian tradition, it's all male pronouns. Sure. Right? The Lord and, and the, even when you talk about Abba or the Father, you know, it's, it's more about Jesus thinking, using that term more and it's more loving and stuff. It's still male and there's a different sort of quality to it that, that's, 
you know, it tends to be overlaid and maybe with all the wounding of the patriarchy and things like that that have gone throughout history. And so it's, it's, it's to me, it feels really important to have that sort of balance. That's and, and the recognition that it's beyond the divine is beyond any human language. Totally. I, I, and we'll get to that. But I, I do think, you know, as we move here into our more philosophically based uh, part of our conversation, I do think that in a lot of traditions, one would say that consciousness itself, the, the conscious awareness, the the nature of our awareness is kind of a masculine energy where the ground of our being is a kind of feminine essence. And I know that's a typical trope, but that that does it does make sense on some level, however misunderstood or misinterpreted this has been, that yeah. the the light has its masculine dimensions, but the the totality of experience is that holding space that takes on a certain feminine energy. At least we project the feminine onto that. We know that it's not inherently feminine. Yeah. We see things in the dual uh, masculine feminine. And so that, I, mean, I, I mean, yeah, I, and it's fascinating to me to hear this because, you know, I'm a tantric uh, and also. Sure. <laughs> within my own sort of philosophical background and um you know in the tantra tradition it's very much dual yeah dual non-dual you know meaning yeah, that yeah. a two-ness that's a oneness totally and, and so that you have that sense of that interaction between and, and and it's fascinating because within the tantric tradition they tend to think of the energy the the that which is dynamic as more feminine because uh. it, which is creative it's that oh, which is yeah. the, the creative aspect of, of, of the mother the mother give, giving birth to experience to life to uh, every this world you know sort of birthing forth the this experience right here and now and and then they tend to think of actually the that sort of backdrop that silent still presence of life is more masculine i you love know? this shit steady that which is not changing that which is always present. interesting you know? so anyway they're just a, you know well, but it's yeah we not to go off too far but but i <laughs> we were bordering on the sexual metaphor there where you think about you know there, there's an egg and then the masculine inseminates there's a kind of yeah. um it's so we could and no, that's regardless, regardless of how we define that, I think the one yeah. thing that we can really see is the um, the two, the one, and yeah. the two. You know, the yeah. exactly. um, the one to two and the three. Really? <laughs> I actually have a hymn that, that that talks about that. You know, it's a you know that, that it, I am the one, I am the two, I am the three, and I am far beyond. <laughs> something like this. I, I, I butchered the lyrics, but it's something. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, Bill, why don't we take a bladder break and yes. then I'm going to do some reading and we'll dive into intellectual philosophical stuff. Okay, so uh, we're talking about kind of tracking this, um, the philosophical interpretations, and I, I want to be mindful of time. And then sure. just a, a, I'm glad we tended to the mediumship piece because I want to talk about the ontological yeah. differences of kind of ego and other. Uh, but I want to begin this portion of our conversation by reading from you, and okay. it's one of my—it it was just one of my favorite little portions. Well, it's not so little; it's a—it's a paragraph. Um, 
but I but I wanted to bring your written word into our conversation. So I'll sure. begin with this, and then just ask that you start free associating sure. with um, with with what you, whatever comes up for you. So you begin in your uh, chapter two on page one, uh, page fifty one. Uh, your uh, the chapter's titled "Initial Philosophical Reflections: First Person Writing and the Nature of Consciousness," which is the kind of stuff that gets me very excited. You say, I would suggest that this sort of first-person exploration is crucial to any adequate knowledge of what psychedelics have to offer. And in fact, first-person exploration, ideally an exploration that is rooted in a subtle and profound philosophical foundation, and also as phenomenologically nuanced as possible, investigating with as much precision as possible the intricacies of what appears to our consciousness— is crucial to any adequate exploration of consciousness in and itself. Because it has to be said, examining consciousness is not like examining objects in the external world. Human beings throughout our time on this planet and in all cultures have primarily, and it appears, increasingly had to focus our attention almost exclusively on what was going on in the external world simply to survive. So evolutionarily, biologically, it makes sense that we are, as it were, hardwired to look outside ourselves and that what we believe, and that we believe that this realm of experience is what truly counts, what truly matters. Notice the high value that is given even linguistically to what is quantifiable and physical. Human beings, biologically and certainly culturally, are primed to figure out and therefore utilize material objects objects that are assumed, at least tacitly, to possess clear-cut boundaries and to have specific locations in space, objects, objects that can, therefore, be weighed, measured, and quantified, objects that are assumed, at least by most intellectuals of the modern era, to be um, constituted, underneath it all, by mathemati mathematically calculatable, mechanically interactions of infinitesimally small particles and patterns of energy, and these particles and energy patterns are in turn assumed to be completely insentient. That is, really smart people take for granted that these particles and streamings of energy lack even the slightest degree of consciousness. Yeah. Thank Yay. you for that. Thank Yay! You. I know it was a long one, folks. Thanks for hanging in. Uh, but I, I, I think that really gets at so much of what what we're talking about with Christ consciousness and religion and juxtaposing it even as William Blake was doing in the late 1700s, that there's something of our empirical nature, and, and we may even say that the nature of the evolution of human beings, we, we probably had to encounter some degree of that empirical necessity, given that our sensory systems function the way that they do, and neurobiologically we're, we function the way that we do. Uh, but what it leaves out is this element of imagination. And yeah. so I, I, I would love for you to kind of open that up for us and, uh, and speak to that. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, a lot of the books, say how, how, how to put it, I, I had this one wonderful friend who was probably the person who read the book the most carefully as it was being written. He probably read three or four versions of it. God bless him. He's a <laughs> studies person. He's, you know, he's studying Sanskrit. He's also a dimista. He's also a 
someone who works with cranial sacral. He's, he's mm. just an incredibly bright guy. And, 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 and he says, Bill, I think what this book really is about is the nature of consciousness. Mm-hmm. Totally oh. get that. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I agree with that. I agree with that. <laughs> Even though yeah. it, may seem to, it is, of course, about the Sandra Daimi, but really it's like what I'm really, because I mean, you know, I, I come from a, decades of interest in, in the nature of consciousness that of course is going to be percolating in the background as you could see with that that quote that you read yes. so it's it's a it's i'm going to be bringing into this discussion my own understanding of the nature of consciousness which is that um it you know most people i would say that probably 99 percent of of intellectuals assume that consciousness is created by the brain basically and that they and and they assume that the brain at bottom is made of insentient particles or or energies that are mathematically very you know coming together that and somehow miraculously create consciousness and and to me that's always like really that these that you, you get very complex interactions of 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 things that are understood to be insentient, where does consciousness come from out mm-hmm. of all that? Mm-hmm. And so I tend to come from a very different philosophical perspective. As I mentioned before, I'm a tantrika, right? And um, what that one of the things that me- that means is the understanding it's, it's that everything at bottom is conscious and that it's everything that we're perceiving that that we think of as material objects is a form of consciousness right so e- so we're not just talking about consciousness as being produced by the brain rather the brain which you know this is a thing we can talk about with william james rather that the, the brain's function is to like like a tv set is to receive pre-existing streamings of consciousness and to tune into different sort of frequencies of consciousness, but the brain doesn't produce consciousness. Like a TV set doesn't produce the, the, the television program you're watching. It may look like it, you know, if you were just, if you were just like, didn't know anything about, about uh, what, how a TV set works. So again, it's probably easier to think of a TV set like from old fashioned, like say 1950s, the mm-hmm. TV set grew up with right where you could like go behind the the back and see all the tubes you know lighting up and and buzzing and stuff and you think you look at that and think if you didn't know anything any better like you're a child right it's like you know you 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 turn off the tv and the tubes go back and then the program goes away and you turn the tv on the tubes start doing all their crackling and buzzing and and the program comes on so you, you think oh the tubes are creating the program right but that's not everyone knows we know that's not the case. That these that these programs, these electromagnetic streamings, are already existing, and the TV is just tuning in to certain frequencies of those pre-existing, you know, streamings. Now, of course, it's just that's just a metaphor, but at least it helps us to get beyond that sense that that somehow the brain individually and seemingly and quite frankly miraculously produces consciousness independently within each person right um and i say miraculous because again how it doesn't matter how complicated and intricate these interactions are 
But if you consider neurons to be insentient, if you consider the atoms and electrons to be insentient, if, if it's all just sort of dead stuff, how does all this complicated dead stuff create the more consciousness out of nothing, you know, basically? And so to me, it makes a lot more sense. And it's just my, my experience of this too, to envision a much more sort of and, and imagine in, in the sense, in just like we, 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 a much more expansive sense of imagination. To me, I, I tend to almost more use the word envision, to envision our experience as fundamentally consciousness. You know, so that so that if you look at if you look at like let's say I'm, I'm looking at, at my water bottle here, right? My experience of the water bottle is. It's, I have, I'm conscious of the water bottle. And it's like, this water bottle is, is part of my conscious experience right here, right now, right? And so I can hypothesize that there is this material object that is independent of my conscious knowing of it. But I could also hypothesize that that water bottle is, it all that I really know about the water bottle is my conscious experience of it. So to me, I tend to think of everything is made of experiences in essence, mm -hmm. right? That that's the fundamental uh, bedrock of, of existence ontologically is consciousness. Consciousness with a capital C though for me. Right, meaning that it's a divine consciousness, it's a universal consciousness, it's a cosmic consciousness, and that we're all sort of like holographic, prismatic, um, uh, microcosmic um, portals through which that universal consciousness creates something along those lines. Makes we, sense to me. We, 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 we can uh, unpack all of that a lot right but uh, what would you would you do that like why what does james say about this that helps us get deeper into it and um kind of enlighten me to his mode because i i still have that unfinished business with you where we didn't get to talk as much about james last time and i want to yeah wanna bring him in yeah because so so he he's he's where i first began to get that understanding of you know because he talks about um um that there are two philosophical ways of understanding consciousness. One is is the the productive way of thinking of consciousness, i.e., that the brain produces consciousness, and the other is what he calls the transmissive, whereas the brain basically, uh, um, you could almost call it the receptive theory or the TV set theory, yeah. that you know you're receiving um, influxes from this pre-existing larger cosmic consciousness, right? And um, so I use James in the book a lot um, first to establish that sort of model and then to begin to talk about how to, you know, understand these visionary or mis visionary slash mystical experiences you can have within the Santo Daimi tradition. Because, you know, he talks about um, that every moment of experience just quotidian, just everyday normal experience for his perspective is a fusion of two different types of what he calls knowledge. One is, is knowledge by acquaintance and then knowledge about. And knowledge by acquaintance 
is immediate, direct, sensory-like experience. So it's like, um, I can, again, look, can look at this water bottle and say, my sensory experience of the water bottle is it's purple. You know, and I, you know it's like, I'm seeing purple. You know, anyone with, with, with well-functioning, you know, sense organs with, with well-functioning eyes can see this is a purple water, bo water bottle. Um, but you notice I'm saying purple and I'm saying water bottle. That's knowledge about. That's that's mm -hmm. basically linguistic knowledge, knowledge that that interprets, that analyzes, that categorizes, that compares and contrasts. That it's knowledge that we've gained through we get through our culture primarily, right? So we have a whole understanding that is what a water bottle means, right? And so um, you know, so for instance. Um, I, I, I remember this um, movie I saw many, many decades ago. It's called The Gods Must Be Crazy. Oh, yeah. And, and I don't know if you right? Great film. It's a great film, right? Very funny. And one of the things in the film is they have this this guy, these people up in an in a airplane, little, uh, you know, just a, a small airplane. And somehow the, a, a Coke bottle drops from the, from the airplane <laughs> off to the Kalahari Desert. And this this uh indigenous person within the desert sees this happening and and looks at the coke bottle now he's going to have the same knowledge by acquaintance that we would of that coke bottle he's going to see the same shape the same colors he's going to he picks it up it's going to feel the same all those things all the sense data is going to be the same but he has no understanding of coke no understanding of what a bottle would be for him it's like this this thing has fallen from the sky. It's, it's a gift from the gods, right? And, and so he's going to have a different overlay of the knowledge about onto that experience, right? So, and 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 so James is going to say that every experience is an is a is an interactive fusion of these two different radically different types of knowledge, right? And so, what I I, I and this is I'm drawing upon this from a previous work I had I did with James uh, about the nature of mystical and visionary experiences that this can also be a way a lens from which we can look at those types of experiences and begin to sort of say yeah there's a t quality of experience that is um oh, 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 let me back up a bit there are there are certain theories within religious studies about mystical experiences that will claim that mystical experiences are nothing but productions of of our expectations that we've gained mm. through our culture, through our religious training, through our uh, scriptural study. That basically all mystical experiences are complicated creations of knowledge about, basically, mm. you know and. There's it's incredibly important understanding uh, within within religious studies. They were that was fighting the uh, the prior understanding that mystical experiences are nothing but you know something revelatory, something coming from these deeper divine levels of reality, right? That from the more is what James would call it. And James is going to say, let's have it, let's do both and. Why does it have to be either or? Right. You know, let's let's understand that there can be these uprushings, these upwellings of like 
information, quite literally information from these deeper levels of reality, from uh, these different deeper strata of our being to, um, because I we can have a discussion, you know, the way the inter interface between our being and and reality is a whole inter whole discussion. But so that some this this the more comes up in different, and it's not just an amorphous more. It, it, it you know, so like uh, the feeling, let's say, of divine love, of unconditional love, might surface within the visionary, within the mystic, right? And James would say that just like that's a type of knowledge by acquaintance knowing it's immediate it's direct it's undeniable it's an ind indisputable it has its own quality to it right but then that is going to be shaped and molded and interpreted by the person the mystics the visionaries own philosophical and religious and personal background and and it's it's almost like it's going to be that 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 let's say that love or that light or whatever is going to come through a prism, let's say, of the person's psychological and cultural background, and it's going to be shaped into the particular specific experience the mystic has. Therefore, let's say that a uh, uh, Islamic mystic most likely, if they were going to have that experience of divine love would be understanding it, let's say, as, as a blessing from Muhammad, let's say, mm -hmm. or from Allah. Whereas some, a Christian would, it might even be shaped as an experience of the Christ with open arms and light glowing from within, let's say, right? But the, that source of unconditional love, that, that feeling of unconditional love is going to transcend that cultural uh, matrix, right? But it's going to be inevitably shaped by it, right? And so that, from my perspective, all the experiences you have in the Santadami are, are very similar, right? Well, and you, you, I'm going to take that cue and push a little further down the road with James, because you offer a kind of lens through which he suggests one can kind of see mystical experience through, which includes these three factors, the immediate luminosity, yeah. philosophical reasonableness, and moral helpfulness. Can yeah. we tend to that for a second? Woo. Okay. Yeah, no. <laughs> uh, that same man that, that was, I said, read my book so often was so helpful for me. He thought that that chapter was the most important chapter in the book. Yeah. Um, and I understand why. Because it, 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 this is really important issues. It's like how, and then James, James is so brilliant at this. It's sort of like saying, how do we assess the value and validity of mystical experiences? How do we do that? What are the criteria by which we, we, we do this, right? And so what he's going to say is that on the one hand, you have immediate luminosity, and actually, he, he's, he has used the Victorian word, immediate luminousness, but I just like, I'll, we can translate to luminosity. So immediate luminosity um, means that it, it is, it, it, it's, it's another way of talking about the uh, immediacy and directness and force and persuasive, in, inherent persuasiveness of a mystical experience, that moreness that's, that's surging up from within, right? And he says, we have to give that priority we have to understand that that's really crucial that's an essential aspect of uh it's like why do mystics believe what they believe well it's because of the force and and 
and persuasiveness of that, right? And he says, we had mystic, you, you, you <clears throat> really, for a mystic, you, you, you can't dispute that. You know, you can't sort of say that that's not because you haven't had that experience, whereas mystic has, right? Or a visionary has. Um, but then he says, okay, um, but then you want to add philosophical reasonableness into it because you want to sort of say, okay, how are we best, to, and here comes in sort of the knowledge about, how can we best understand this experience? What's, how can we give shape to it with our words, with our, how can we put it into context? How do, how do we interpret it, right? So you have this experience, but how is, how, how can you make sense of it, right? How do you, um, uh, can you put it in, in, into uh, a philosophical system that is coherent and persuasive in and of itself? Right. So, can it draw upon a deep, uh, a, maybe perhaps a, a an older traditional uh, philosophical systems, right? And mm -hmm. interact with those philosophical understandings, right? And then with moral helpfulness, it's his. That's again his sort of Victorian prose. Doesn't I mean you're moral or you're ethical. It, it, what it means is that can to what degree do these mystical or visionary experiences? To what degree have they? helped you or your community to transform for the better right and again he's very careful he says on the long for the long haul and uh on the whole and over the long haul <laughs> which means like because it's like you have many experiences of mystics throughout throughout the throughout history who when they first are like they can be like gripped by such force with by the divine, these divine revelations that they become almost like incapacitated. Yeah. You know, these, you know, these people that are just like, like dazed with what, how much has hit them. Right. And so they you say, uh, well, they don't, they don't seem to be very, uh, they seem to have gotten worse. You know, <laughs> they can't even cook in the kitchen anymore. Where's right? the social value of this? Right, where's the, exactly. Right. And so, so, so you have to like, look at, you know, at, at the, on the long haul, does the mystic become a better person, right? And on the whole, mm -hmm. so it doesn't mean they have to become perfect, but then you know, but then that gets all complicated because then you're, how are you assessing that? Because it's yeah. then you have philosophical reasonableness to be able to sort of say, well, here's why I think that they're better, and why, here's why I think they're worse, etc., 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 right? And so what I try to do is sort of just say, yeah, let, well, let's just, let's within the Santra Dimitrician, let's just sort of look at like do we are we becoming better people and why do we want to keep doing this if it's not to become better human beings and not to become better more loving more kind more clear more patient you know and is it is it working or not right? well, it it brings up the the question that People, I don't know. I've I've talked with a number of people that are really surprised to learn that there are pretty amoral communities that use psychedelics. Oh yeah. And and you mentioned earlier kind of black magic. You know, like uh, yeah. when you look at the kind of diagnostic criteria, and if we could say that of a typical shamanic approach, you know, you look at kind of removal of these darts because an individual yeah. has kind of taken in or interjected these yeah. 
projections or whatever we want to say, or magic, you know, they, they, they've taken in the black magic of somebody else. And so the shaman is working to kind of extract, it's like an exorcism process. Yeah. Um, would you speak for a moment about the, the moral dimensions of psychedelics and maybe some of your concerns about, uh, about the use of these substances? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a really important question. I, I definitely address it in the book because it, because again, it comes back to what, what my reluctance initially to be involved with ayahuasca because I knew of this whole potential. I mean, because in in the in the indigenous tradition, it's not like the shaman is just 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 exercising and pulling out these spirit darts. Maybe the shaman's also sending spirit darts back in retaliation to the other community. So it's sort of like, is the shaman a, a shaman a, a, or is he, he or is he a sorcerer? Yeah. yeah. Or she, you know, it can be both. So, you know, that gets very complex. And so you have, um, and again, I'm really amazed by this because within my own tradition, within the my own experience of it, within the Santra Daimi tradition, it is such, a, there, there's a sense that, that the Daimi itself is, and I have a whole discussion about this, is is coming, you know, from the divine mother. It's coming from God. It's it's a thing of God. It's it's and it's it's meant to help and to heal and to transform. And it's there for light to bring love to bring healing. And um, but the substance itself clearly, in throughout you know these different traditions, doesn't have to be used in that way and isn't often used in that way. So it seems that there is a a way in which it matters the intentionality by which you are using and even creating it. So um, we didn't talk about this, you know, back when we we're talking about the different rituals of the daimi, and you had mentioned just briefly the ritual of creating the daimi. Um, mm-hmm. They call it feichio, right? Um, where the daimi itself is created with such an beautiful intentionality of uh where the people want to be really quiet very reverent very focused um it's done and done while drinking daimi so you're having to beat the vines by hand you're having to sort the leaves not having to but you know of course you're you're in order to create the 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 drink right the the beverage the brew um and so is that and so it's it's I'm, I'm, it's still an open question for me. Physically, ayahuasca is the same as the diamond. Energetically, is it the same? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Is is it even ontologically the same? I don't know. Um, I do know that within the Santa Daimi tradition, we're holding even as it's being, we're helping to create a substance that in, for us is a sacrament, is a, a manifestation of the divine. Now, is the divine moral is a whole other question <laughs> in and of itself, right? <laughs> right. So Jeff Kripal and I have had extensive conversations sure. about that very issue, right? And so my, where I come down is that I try to make it, sense that I don't think that the daimi is amoral. 
but I don't think it's moral either. I think it's what I call transmoral. Um, and there may be to some extent in which it is moral too, depends upon, so, okay, it's complicated. Again, I think one of the most difficult chapters <laughs> I had to write was like, what, what is the diamond? Yeah. The whole very complicated issue, right? Because you've got this substance, this physical substance that from our perspective contains a divine consciousness. And that itself is, it's almost, again, that's very Christian. If you want to talk about, you know, Christian meaning that to my mind, Christianity, the Christ, Jesus, and is inherently divine, fully divine and fully human. That's that's, that's classic Orthodox Christianity, right? Yeah. And so the timing, fully physical, fully divine at the same time, from our perspective, right? And so if you've got a chemical substance that you can be analyzed, and yet that I is that consciousness within the daimi the same as the consciousness that's within ayahuasca? I don't know. I I, I just don't know. Um, well, I, this is this reminds me of. Uh, and by the way, the dog barking will be edited out. It's nobody will hear. It. Uh, this reminds me of something I, I have in my pocket. This is kind of funny. Um, I have I have this rock. Yeah, I've had this rock for close to fourteen years. It's been in a bag, it's been in my pocket, I carry it around, I hold it, and it's like any other rock. And if I put it down on the ground, people would walk by it all the time, but to me, it's not any other yeah. rock. Right. It's sacred. It has yeah. a great deal of meaning, and I've imbued it with a great deal of energy over the many years. Yeah. And one day, I'll randomly set it down somewhere and walk away from it. But I, I, I think, I mean... That's maybe a very small in scale image of of what we're talking about here is that when you pull something out of the mundane and you attend to it and you love it and you bring intentionality to it, it becomes something other. And that's that's how we differentiate the sacred and profane. And so I, I to learn about the way that you all tend to this sacramental substance, with so much intentionality from the the outset, oh yeah, I don't know, but but um, maybe there's some weird, mysterious, like psychodynamic, projective aspect of this that because the quote set and setting is such, it inherently sets it up as a yep. different structure than wow. if it weren't. Uh, other than that, and and Bill, hang on for a second. I got to text somebody because I'm late, and I want to be late because I'd prefer to hang out with you for a second. Um, <laughs> to me, that really meant a lot to differentiate. I don't know the way that ayahuasca is typically prepared, but it does seem like if you have an organized religious tradition that builds structures yeah. in the ways in which y you all have, uh, that's certainly attractive and. Uh, I, I would want that kind of care with a sacramental substance yeah. in any tradition of which I was a part. And um, I find it very beautiful. And so I, I want to leave you plenty of time, but we need to start closing out. And sure. um, the, the one thing that I want to say is that um, we've left a lot on the table here that we haven't been able to attend to in our conversation and yeah. so anybody who's watching or listening, I hope what you do with that is get this book, Liquid <laughs> Light. It's reversed, but um, 
and uh, and get more into it because because really, uh, Bill, you've done such a you've covered so much depth yeah. in so many different ways that I'm all three of those readers. I I am a a practitioner. I am a researcher and an explorer of consciousness from both an academic and personal perspective. And I'm interested in the subject of psychedelics. And I'm interested in this renaissance that we're in where two two years, I just read today, two years from today, the government is looking at sending the green light for uh, universal therapeutic uses of psychedelics. Thank God. I know. That's amazing, right? I'm, I'm, I, I feel so so blessed that to be sort of part of that to whatever degree I can just help people see the beauty uh, and the potential beauty at least of working with these substances and the potential therapeutic potential transformative value of these things and I think I mean the book really in some ways I mean there's so many things that it's doing but in, in some ways it's, all, it's really focused on like something that is isn't talked about a lot which is basically how these substances can be an integral part of a very profound and, and transformative spiritual path. Yeah. Right. And as part as a religion. And and that's mm-hmm. that and I want to because people tend to think of it, you know, as either recreational or now more just just, and there's the, that's air quote there, therapeutic. Therapy, I mean, yeah. Therapeutic is, is incredibly important. But they most people aren't aware of how profoundly beautiful and transformative it can be within the context of an intentional, carefully um, thought through and and reverently received religious tradition. Well said. So, anyway. so two questions. One, is there anything else? I know there's a ton, but anything else as you think about our conversation that you want to note? And also, where would you like to send people? What? Uh, how can they find you and the work that you're doing? Um, the, the one part that we really didn't get a chance to di- dive into, and just I just want to note it, you know, is is uh, a hold. I mean, probably a third of the book is about mediumship, and it's I know, about. And I feel oh, that I'm like, it's yeah. it's all about the ontological questions of these beings that you contact and they're, you know, the participatory nature of that and how much. And so you can imagine how James might approach something like the otherness and the sameness of these beings and the interactive nature of that. And I just want to mention that that's a lot of what the book is about and trying to really think that through from an experiential standpoint. Um, And so that's just one, just just to sort Agreed. of read. Yes, <laughs> I, keep, I guess I keep rationalizing it, saying, okay, like we can leave some creativity on the table, and people can go and read the book yeah. because yeah. it was yeah. such an important set. Um, I, I wanted to say portion, but it was such a large swath of the book. It's such an important question to answer. I think psychotherapeutically, because I, yeah. you know, I do things like tell people to name a, or ask people to name a part of their. Um, their personality to kind of create these um, distinct yeah. um, personality structures that are different than the the their their kind of core identity or the core ideas of the way that they um, relate to themselves and 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 you're you're in this process that you're in in the Santo Daime tradition that's an actualized 
experiential component where you're you're working with entities and um, elements of uh, of existence that are experiences outside of oneself, which is yeah. powerful stuff. No matter exactly. how you understand it. Without a doubt, and, 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 that there, and it's happening within us. And so it's yeah. part of our psyche. So it's, it's this really interesting interaction between self and other and different degrees of selfness and different degrees of otherness. And it's just rivetingly fascinating Agreed. within myself to have experienced that and then, and then to be able to have how to sort of put some words around that. And, and and the physicality of that whole process too, and so there is a certain way in which the daimi is uh, uh, it moves the body, and so there's there's a way in which it's not just all mental. There's a way in which which we haven't really talked about, but it's very visceral, and and the body counts for a lot, which I think is really important. Um, but anyway, <laughs> that's a whole other thing, and. Uh, um, if people were interested also, I think one thing which I, I really want to mention is that in tandem with the book, uh, I worked really hard with some really brilliant people to create a website that is I'm really proud of. It's um, They can find it liquidlightbook.com. And it gives a right away a 20% discount if you, to buy the book from Columbia University Press, but also gives a... Um, a lot of, yeah, I have something there called Psychedelics 101, Santo Daimi 101, which is basically sort of just the basics of what you need to know about the Santo Daimi, about, about what I think anyone knowing what interested in psychedelics should know, just to start off, um, just to give a foundation. It has a, a extensive biographies of, of Mestre Irineo and, and soon, hopefully, Pagina Sebastial, so the historical unfoldment of the Daimi. It also has uh, recordings and lyrics of of my hymns, which I want to give people uh, um, at least a taste of of um, sort of the beauty and and the profundity of of um, these hymns, and and I can at least share my own hymns, and then hopefully they can. I'm going to have links to where you can hear other more traditional Santo Daimi hymns and things wow. like that. You know, what so an undertaking that site must have been. Oh, it was an amazing, I, I, I know nothing about this sort of things. And so <laughs> I had some very skilled, very creative, very beautifully talented people that helped me with this. And so I'm very proud of that site. And so I, I encourage people to go there and um, check that out too. Well, I'll make note of that in the intro as well. And uh, look below, of course, in the show notes for all the links to um, to find to find your book and of course this website and I can tell you Bill this is an absolute pleasure oh, thank um, you to read your work and to talk to you of course this is why I'm doing this whole process but I'm I'm very grateful for this conversation your time and uh, and for your work and all the things that you do oh thank you this is I mean it's same I mean John this is. Uh... These sorts of conversations are some of the most pleasurable, enjoyable, fulfilling times of my life. And so it's just an honor and a privilege to talk with you. And thank you so much for the work you're doing, the beautiful, beautiful work you're doing with such heart and such clarity. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so hang out real quick. Um, many thanks, man. Oh